Our passage this morning is uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Uh, before we jump back into the book of Matthew, we're going to pause here for a brief uh, three-week sermon series exploring the purpose and the practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to be asking the question, what is this sacrament and, and why did God give it to the church? And how should a church properly practice the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? But before we can start talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, we must first take some time to consider the nature of the church itself. If God gave this sacrament to the church, before we can wrap our minds around its purpose for the church and its practice within the church, we have to know what is a church. And so in order to help us answer that question this morning, we are going to look at this brief passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, that is page number 1148 of your pew Bibles. Uh, and again, we're looking at verses 14 through 16, just the three verses there at the tail end of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning by your supernatural power, you would cause us to glory in your creation of the church. That not only have you glorified yourself in the church, but you have brought us into the church by your grace through faith that we might one day be glorified with you for eternity. And I pray, Father, that we would um, have our hearts moved and our minds uh, grown and strengthened in this message today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I asked you to describe for me the attributes of a chair, uh, you might say something like, well, a chair has four legs and it has a, a place for, for someone to sit, uh, which is true. But the only problem is, is that that also describes a stool and a bench and a couch. And not all chairs have four legs. My office chair, for example, has six little spokes with wheels on the end. But it's also hard to be more specific than that because chairs do come in all different shapes and sizes. There's table chairs and office chairs, living room chairs. Some of them recline. And all of those chairs look very different, but we would still call them all chairs. And we would still differentiate them from stools and benches and couches. So what makes a chair a chair? What are the essential attributes of a chair? 
It's the same thing with a car. I I could ask you to tell me uh, the essential attributes of a car. And and you might say something like, well, a car is a a motorized vehicle. It it has wheels. It has some sort of a propulsion system. There's places within it for people to to sit down. And all that is very true, but that's also true of a truck and a tractor and a motorcycle and even an airplane. None of which are cars. Cars. But again, it's, it's hard to be more specific than that because cars come in all different shapes and sizes. There's station wagons and race cars and sedans. All look very differently and yet all are still considered cars. So what makes a car a car? What are the essential attributes of a car? Now, unfortunately, we will not be able to answer these questions this morning because we're not here to discuss the metaphysical properties of a car or a chair. But the reason I bring this up is because it's the very same thing with the church. If I were to ask you to describe for me the essential attributes of a church, you might say something like, well, a church is a group of people that gather together to sing songs and to hear somebody teach from the Bible. Well, that's very true. And, and the same thing with cars and chairs. Is chairs, all different kinds of churches come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes. There's Reformed churches like ours here this morning. There's Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches. And we would consider each of these a church. And we would not confuse them with a concert or a TED Talk or a stand-up comedy show, at least Most of the time, we wouldn't confuse them with those things. But not everything that calls itself a church is a church, even if it looks like a church. The Mormon church, for example, they gather on Sundays. They sing many of the same hymns that we sing here. Somebody stands up and teaches from the Bible, yet we would not consider the Mormon church a true church. Even some historically Christian churches have lost the essential attributes of a church so that we would not consider them a true church anymore either. So what makes a church a true church? What are the essential attributes of a true church? In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to a friend and a co-worker named Timothy. And Timothy really is one of Paul's protégés. He traveled with Paul for over 10 years and all of the missionary journeys that Paul went on throughout uh, the known world at the time. And he's writing to him now as he's taken this position as the lead pastor of a church in Ephesus. And Paul's writing to him because this, this church is dealing with all kinds of trouble. They have false teachers within the church. They are misunderstanding how uh, a leader is qualified to be a leader. They're struggling with how to care for widows properly, how to deal with leaders who fall into sin, and how to think about their money, just to name a few. And so Paul writes this letter to the church to help them. And and in our passage this morning, which comes at the center of the letter, Paul gives his thesis statement for the letter. This is where Paul sums up the purpose of the letter that he's writing. And in so doing, He points us to the essential attributes of the church as well. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now notice, Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to a specific local congregation in Ephesus. But his instructions are universal. Based on what he says here, it's, it's clear that everything he says in this letter is meant for every church in every place at every time. These instructions are how all people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. Whether the church in Ephesus in 63 AD or Emmanuel Church in Ripon in 2022. So, two different understandings of church are at play in our passage this morning. Paul is telling Timothy, who is pastoring a specific, local, visible church in Ephesus, how every church and every time and every place ought to conduct themselves. And so when the word church is used in the New Testament, sometimes it's talking about this universal, invisible church of all times and all places that includes all true believers. The church began when Adam and Eve sinned and then were given a promise that one day God would send a deliverer to crush Satan. And as soon as Adam and Eve believed and received that promise, the church began And it includes every true believer on earth in America, in China, in Africa. It includes every Christian alive in the world today, as well as every Christian that has already died and gone to heaven. This is the church Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16 when he tells Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the church that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5 when he tells husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's the first definition of church we find in the New Testament. Sometimes the New Testament is talking about this invisible universal church of all times and all places that includes every true believer. But sometimes when the New Testament talks about church, it's talking about a visible, local congregation of believers in a certain place at a certain time. For example, Paul opens his letter to the Thessalonians this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So here he's clearly talking about a specific church in Thessalonica. He's writing to a specific group of people in a certain place at a certain time. Now, if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. Because if the church was only an invisible idea, if there were no actual visible expressions of this idea called the church, then how could anyone know that it actually even exists? You you can tell a kid who grew up in the North Pole, all about flowers. But unless you bring him a flower that he can hold and see and smell, there's no way he can truly understand what a flower is. So it's important for us to have both understandings of church in our minds as we look at our passage today. Because both understandings of church are in play here. Paul, his instructions are for Timothy, who is at a specific visible church in Ephesus during the middle of the first century. Yet, as Paul points out, 
The reason those instructions are so important to them then is because this is how members of every church and every time and every place ought to conduct themselves. Because the church is the household of God. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth in every place and every generation. But the only way that this can be is if there are specific visible churches in certain places and certain times where that truth is taught and that conduct is lived out. And so, in our passage this morning, we see two things that a visible local church must have if it is really, truly part of the invisible church of all times and all places. Let's look at our passage again. Paul says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, the two attributes or the two characteristics that every true visible church shares with the invisible church are truth and conduct. Or another way to say it would be belief and behavior. The essential attribute shared by every true church, whether a local visible church at a specific time in a specific place or the universal church of all times, the essential attributes they share are that they, they think the same way and they act the same way. They share life and doctrine. They have the same beliefs and the same behaviors that naturally flow from those beliefs. This is why Paul tells Timothy later, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation is dependent on the life and doctrine of the church. The only way Timothy can save himself and his hearers, according to Paul right here, is if he maintains a life that reflects the conduct of a true church and the teachings, and he maintains the teachings of a true church. Now, we will not be able this morning to get into the uh, nitty-gritty details of those teachings uh, or of those behaviors. But the goal for this morning is just to get these two categories firmly in place. That what a true church is, is a church that has the proper beliefs and the proper behaviors that flow from those beliefs. This is because the church is where the living God is found. It's his household. The church is God's family. If you want to know God, he is known through his people, especially when they gather together. The church is who preserves God's truth by upholding it like a pillar and providing the place where God's truth is grounded like the foundation of a building. And if someone becomes a member of God's household, if someone becomes an adopted son or daughter of the living God, it's because they are resting on these truths. They uphold these truths and they are upheld by these truths. These are the doctrines taught by every true church from the very word of God about the Son of God through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And when someone is resting in 
and being upheld by these truths, certain conduct and behavior will necessarily flow from believing those things. Or as one theologian says, if you believe something, you will act as if it is true. Let me say that again. He says, if you believe something, you will act as if it is true. So if you believe you have cancer, you will go to the doctor. You will likely get chemotherapy. If you believe somebody is trustworthy, you will give them responsibility and you won't micromanage them. If you believe a chair is old and rickety and frail, then you are not going to sit on that chair because our actions naturally flow from our beliefs. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says, but among you, speaking to the same church in Ephesus, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, we don't live like this to become a child of God. We don't have to conform to these standards in order to be accepted by God. But once we are accepted by God, once we are brought into his family as a child by simply believing in what Christ has done for us by faith, we do conform to his law by his power because we are accepted by him, because we are already assured of his love for us in Christ. In fact, our growth in godliness or our sanctification, as it's called, is a necessary result of being welcomed into the family of God by grace through faith. Which is why Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 to say this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. <laughs> Be what you already are. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Did you hear that? Once we have become light by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ, we live as children of the light. And the fruit of that consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. There it is again. Conduct and truth. Behavior and belief. Life and doctrine. Now, it's at this point, I imagine, there are some who would want to push back on this a little bit. And they might say something like this. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Patrick. How is it possible to include behavior as one of the defining attributes of the church? Aren't we all still sinners? Isn't it true that there is nothing we could ever do to lose our salvation? Shouldn't the church be identified by those who simply believe the gospel alone and not by our works? Aren't we saved by faith alone and, and not by our works? So, so shouldn't the church be defined by what we believe more than how we act? Well, let's think about our passage in 1 Timothy again. 
Remember, Paul, Paul tells Timothy that he is writing to him so that people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which implies there is a certain standard of behavior for those who are within God's household. Because that household of God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And the way we conduct ourselves makes the truth we proclaim believable. Because everybody knows that if you believe something, you will act as if it is true. And so the way we act, our behavior, demonstrates what it is that we actually believe. And then in the very next verse, Paul says this. He says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. (laughs) And isn't that the truth? Paul knows there's a mystery to how all of this works. Because isn't that the question that we all wonder about? How can I be truly godly? I'm bombarded personally with doubts and fears and sins. And I know the weakness of my own flesh. And yet I know that God calls me to be holy and to live as a citizen of his kingdom and as a member of his household. So tell me the mystery of godliness. I want to know. Well, here it is. Paul goes on. He says this. He says, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. That's the mystery of godliness. Because the mystery of godliness is Jesus. See, Paul's quoting from a first century hymn here. This would be like me saying, the mystery of godliness is great. And here's what it is. The dying lamb whose precious blood shall never lose his power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. See, most of you know that hymn instantly. So that's that's what Paul's doing here. He's quoting a hymn that he knows everyone will recognize that speaks of Jesus coming to this earth in the flesh, dying and rising in victory, and then ascending into glory and being preached to the ends of the earth. Because that message is the mystery of godliness. But that sounds like the gospel. Yes, that's the story of the good news of the gospel. Well, well, how is that the mystery of godliness? I, I thought the gospel is the news that I believe that gets me into the household of God. I need to know what I'm supposed to do. I need to know what I'm supposed to do in order to grow in godliness now, now that I'm into this household. But that's the mystery of godliness. You see, we grow in godliness. We are made into the likeness of the family of God in the exact same way that we are brought into the family of God in the first place, by grace, through faith. We we don't still struggle with sin because we fail to do our spiritual disciplines in just the right way or because we couldn't finally muster up enough willpower this time. We don't still struggle with sin because we haven't spent enough time meditating on the fires of hell. No, we struggle with sin because of our unbelief. 
right? We believe, but help me with my unbelief. You see, the mystery of godliness is that we grow in godliness by grace through faith. We, we grow in godliness by trusting in the work of Jesus in us. See, the truth of the gospel that defines the true church is that we trust in Jesus for our righteousness, for our justification. We put our faith in his life and death and resurrection in our place. And then the conduct and behavior that characterizes the true church flows from our trust in Jesus to make us holy and to sanctify us. You see, the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus promises not only to forgive your sin, but to purify you from all unrighteousness. He promises to make you holy. And we become holy by simply trusting his promise to make us holy. And this is why you cannot be a Christian apart from the local church. Because the church is the household of the living God. The church is the embassy on this planet where citizens of the kingdom gather. The church is the place where children of the light walk together in the light, grounded in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The church is the only place where God's truth is upheld like a pillar. The church is the only place where we can rest on the sure foundation of God's truth because the church is the place where the leaders of the church watch their life and doctrine closely so that they can save themselves and their hearers. And the church is the only place where the pure gospel of justification and sanctification by free grace through faith is preached. You see, we all know this is true. We, we, we think like and we act like those who we associate with. If somebody departs from the church and begins to spend time with people who are not Christians, they will begin to think like those people and they will begin to act like those people. Our community shapes our beliefs and our behaviors more than anything else in this world. And God knows that. And so he gives us the church out of his kindness and out of his generosity. And then he invites us into the church simply by believing the truths of the gospel. And then he grows us and shapes us into his likeness as we continue to hear these truths and believe them more and more and rest in them more and more. You see, you can't be part of the invisible church only unless you're dead. If you are still alive and breathing on this planet, the only way to be a part of the invisible, sorry, the only way to be part of the invisible church is to join an actual visible church. The only way to maintain your life and doctrine, the only way to keep true belief and true behavior that flows from that belief and that is consistent with being a member of the household of God is to be a member of a local church. This is a reformed church here. And part of what it means to be a reformed church is that we hold to the confessions of the reformed church. 
Uh, here at Emmanuel Church, we're part of the Christian Reformed denomination, and we hold to the three forms of unity, which is the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. And we believe that these essential, foundational, pillar-like truths of the church that come from God's word are articulated to us accurately and succinctly by these confessions. And, and that's why we hold to them. Now, these confessions are not scripture. They, they could be edited if they needed to be, uh, but they have largely gone unedited for 500 years. And that's because they do accurately represent what the scriptures have to say about these things. And so listen to what the Belgian Confession says about everything that we've been talking about so far. It says, we believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it, people ought not to withdraw from it, content to be by themselves, regardless of their status or condition. But all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ. And let's not forget the yoke of Christ. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. And by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. You see, we join the universal, invisible church by joining a local, visible church that teaches true doctrine and conducts their lives according to that doctrine. So how does somebody know if they are part of a true church or if they are going to join a church that is a true church? Well, <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? Because a true church <clears throat> that is teaching the true, <clears throat> the true church that is teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the mystery of godliness, how can somebody know if they are a part of a church that is a pillar and foundation of the truth, that is teaching the gospel that empowers sinners to conduct themselves rightly in God's household? Again, the Belgic Confession helps us to answer this question as well. In the next uh, article, we read, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. So a true church does three things. First, it preaches the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That God promises to save sinners from sin by grace through faith. And salvation from sin is both salvation from the penalty of sin and the power of sin by grace through faith. We trust in Christ and Christ alone for our entire salvation our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. When we are united to Christ by faith, he makes us righteous before God. He grows us in holiness and he will glorify us with himself. And we can be assured of this right now in this very moment by simply receiving that promise through faith as a free gift of God's grace. Did you know that? That's the gospel. All you do 
is believe his promise to forgive you of your sins and to purify you of unrighteousness and to glorify you one day with him eternally in heaven. Once you believe that simple truth, once you believe that simple promise, you are immediately brought into the invisible church and therefore you must immediately bind yourself to a visible church because the church is God's means to keep you in this faith till the end. This is why Paul later tells Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Because a true church is a church that preaches this gospel in season and out of season, which means when people want to hear it and when they don't. Another way we can tell if a church is a true church is if it practices church discipline for correcting faults, as the catechism says. Now, I will admit that church discipline sounds harsh to our modern ears. Uh, For many of us, it stirs up images of teenagers who have been immoral together, being brought before the congregation and shamed and, and forced to confess their sins in front of everybody. And that's not a pretty sight, really, especially when most of the time they had both already repented of their sin and And so that's what usually comes to our minds when we think of church discipline. But discipline itself is not a bad thing. Most of us wish we were more self-disciplined. All good parents discipline their children. In fact, some of the worst parents are those who will not discipline their children. And I'm afraid that we as a church throughout the entire Western world, not just this church here, we have such a bad taste in our mouths for how church discipline was done in the past, that we get a little queasy thinking about it now. But if to be a member of a church, if to be part of God's household and to believe the truth of the gospel and to conduct ourselves in a way that aligns with the fruit of the gospel, if that's what it means to be a member of a true church, then all church discipline really is, is correcting somebody when they go astray in their conduct or their beliefs. So if someone all of a sudden begins to doubt that Jesus is God, it's church discipline when we correct them, when we show them that no, Jesus had to be God. The gospel couldn't be true if Jesus wasn't God. It required somebody who had the power of God to come and to save us from our sins. If someone starts living in an openly immoral lifestyle, we correct them because as we read earlier in Ephesians 5, that kind of lifestyle is clear evidence that someone is not trusting Jesus and people who don't trust Jesus will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's loving and kind and gracious and good to correct someone in that case. And this kind of correcting happens all the time. As we live our lives together, as we talk with one another and and study God's word together, this kind of correcting is the natural ebb and flow of a healthy church. 99% of church discipline happens between friends as they live their lives together and sharpen each other's beliefs and behaviors as they study the Bible together in small groups. Church discipline is not primarily the law court of the church where someone is outed in front of everyone for their sin. Most of what qualifies as church discipline has nothing to do with someone getting excommunicated from the church. It's just believers 
living their lives together as iron sharpening iron. Now, it is true that if someone persists in their false beliefs and their sinful actions, then the sad, painful, eventual end of church discipline may be where the elders come together and determine that this person's beliefs and behaviors are outside of what somebody who is truly part of the church would believe believe in how they would behave, but only because they're unrepentant of it, not because they fell into it. And if they are unrepentant of it and they've persisted in it and the process has gone on long enough, then through tears, the elders will say that this person is no longer a member of this particular local church as far as they know. That's all church discipline really is. The final mark of a true church is the right administration of the sacraments. And now we finally get back to where we started when uh, we first began and where we'll actually pick up next week. You see, if a true church is defined by a certain set of beliefs and then behaviors that necessarily flow from those beliefs, And if those beliefs and behaviors are secured and fortified by the pure preaching of the gospel and by church members disciplining and correcting themselves and each other, then the question is, how do the sacraments fit in? And that is going to be the topic of next week's sermon. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we truly do thank you for the church. We thank you for this community that you have assembled, that you have brought together by your word and by your spirit, and that you have united us to yourself by faith. And in so doing, God, you have brought us into this community that we might be iron that sharpens other iron and that we might be sharpened by others and both our beliefs and our conduct. God, we thank you that all of this happens by grace through faith, And that by simply believing your promise to rescue us from the penalty of our sin, we also believe your promise to rescue us from the power of sin. And that you are the one who works salvation in us, God. What a great and wonderful gift. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.